So our question for you as we begin the sermon today, where do you look for Jesus? I think it might be a good idea to just take 30 seconds here and turn to your neighbor. When you're looking for Jesus, where do you look for Jesus? Go, 30 seconds. Okay, I didn't actually time that, but it feels like 30 seconds to me. So how many of you said, I look in the Old Testament? Okay, there was one. Thank you very much. Glenn Campbell, not the one that you've heard sing, but the other Glenn Campbell right there. He's looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. So most of us look for Jesus in uh, maybe creation around. We see him in nature. We look for Jesus in personal experiences, maybe in prayer, maybe in answered prayer, or maybe what we might call God winks. Or if we're looking for Jesus in the Bible, we tend to turn to Matthew or Mark or Luke or John or Acts or maybe the letters of Paul or somebody else. But very few of us look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, this fall, uh, and by the way, I'm not chiding you for that. I'm just making an introduction here, okay? So it's not, ne- it's not the first place we look when we look for Jesus. But this fall, we are going to be looking for Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament. So we as your pastors are going to be your guide as we look for Jesus in the Old Testament. And we hope we are a trustworthy guide. I was thinking about this past week because, as most of you know, Linda and I have just purchased a home actually this past Monday in uh, Leland, North Carolina, where we're going to be moving. And our realtor down there is a lady named Beth Starkey. She's with Nest Realty. I can't advertise realtors locally because there are so many of them and they're in our church. So I love all of you if you're a realtor locally, but I only know one in the Wilmington area. And Beth has been amazing to us. And along the way of this buying a house process, we have needed a number of different contractors. Some of them because the sellers, instead of uh, repairing the home after the inspector identified some issues, wanted us to do it and they would give us a credit for that, fine. And then after we bought the house, we had some things that we wanted to do with it. So we have needed an electrician, we have needed a pressure washer, we have needed a painter, we have needed an attorney, Most recently, we needed a locksmith because the lock malfunctioned when I had given the code to all these contractors to come in and take care of the home. So where do we find the contractors that we trust? We don't know anybody in the Wilmington area. It's a big enough job if you're in Hickory to find, you know, a contractor for whatever need you have. Well, we trust Beth. And because we trust Beth, she refers these contractors to us, and none of them have disappointed us when we sent them to do the work. So I'm going to be in that role. Your pastors will be in that role of being what we hope will be your trusted guide as we look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Because you trust us, you can trust that we're seeing Jesus in places that perhaps God wants you to see him as well. Now, this search for Jesus and this identification with Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament is not something that we came up with ourselves. Uh, At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke himself tells us that Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with two of his uh, disciples. And as they talk along, Luke tells us that Jesus himself, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, explained to them what was said in the scriptures, and by the scriptures we mean what you and I call the Old Testament, concerning himself. Wouldn't you love to have a manuscript or a a recording of what scriptures Jesus used that day? And then Luke again is the author at the the end of the book of Acts, which uh, Pastor Amy preached on last week, 
when Paul does something very similar. So Paul's under house arrest, and uh, he witnesses to his fellow Jews from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God, and from the law and the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. So both from Luke, but also more indirectly from Jesus and Paul, we know that you can find Jesus all over the Old Testament, and that is going to be our quest. And there didn't seem to be anywhere better to start than right at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. So where do we find Jesus in the story of the creation of the world? Well, let's begin with image bearing. God created man in his own image, in the image of God created him, male and female he created them. So we find this uh, introduction to that little poem in the words, uh, let us make man kind in his image. And it's not going to be strange to find Jesus here because everything in the Old Testament is setting us up for the new. We wouldn't have the New Testament without this foundation here. Um, We wouldn't have Jesus, let me say this real carefully and slowly so you don't miss it. We wouldn't have Jesus if human beings had not been created in the image of God. This is absolutely essential to the story of Jesus when we get to this part in chapter 1. There is so much that's beautiful about the story of creation, and honestly, we could spend a long time here. There's so much value placed on every human life when we are created in God's image. So much dignity, so much glory, so much about God, so much about who you are to God and who God is to you. Walter Brueggemann says this image of God is parallel to the idea of a king. So uh, when a king in ancient times wanted to be sure everybody knows that he is sovereign, he is in charge, what he would do is put statues of himself all around the kingdom and also mint coins with the impression of his face on the coin. Why? So that by his image being distributed across the kingdom, everybody would know who's in charge of all of this. So God is getting ready to uh, spring into the uh, into life the entire world, but he says, I want my image all over the globe, and I'm going to do it by creating human beings to be like me, so that when people see human beings, they will see something of me. They will see the very likeness of God. And he begins this process by saying, let us. Well, who's he talking to? Some say angels, maybe, but angels are not created in the image of God. Some say there's a heavenly council, Job, uh, the book of Job sort of talks about that, but I'm not buying into that either. We know, based on looking back at this through the lens of the New Testament, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are eternal. Uh, Jesus didn't come into being in Bethlehem. So God has a relationship with God, and part of being created in his image is that God creates us to be relational beings, uh, experiencing intimacy, knowing and being known is all being part of created in his image. So God is saying, we've enjoyed this All through eternity, let's create human beings to be able to love and be loved the same way we are. Let us create human beings in our image. So, uh, this being created in God's image involves giving and taking and speaking and hearing and thinking and feeling. 
And from the very beginning, and it's not necessarily yet about sex or gender that's coming up, God creates them male and female. Because the point is, this is to be a relational person. You can't have human beings in isolation. God didn't design us that way. We're designed to be in community with others. And as Pastor Kevin said this morning, it has always been God's desire that people are with him and like him. So the relationship is not only horizontal, it's also vertical. People, in God's view, are not a problem to be solved. Not even now with the influence of sin. People are not a problem to be solved. It's a relationship to be restored. And this is God's longing. God loves people. All people. He loves you. He loves your people. He loves all the people who don't look like or think like or act like you. People are God's amazingly wonderful likeness of him. And people are God's agenda. So people of all colors and shapes and sizes and beliefs and behaviors, regardless of anything else that happens in their world, they are created in God's image with the full capacity to relate to one another and, most importantly, to relate to God. So where do I see Jesus in Genesis chapter 1? Well, as I said, you don't have the story of Jesus without this beginning point of the entire biblical narrative. That's why it's important that we say Jesus is fully human and fully God. He's fully human so that he can connect to us and he can represent us to God. But Colossians says of him, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Only of Jesus has it ever been said, or can it ever be said, that he fully bears the image of God on earth as a living human being. But this is always God's intent, to restore from brokenness and need people into a relationship with him. And the beauty of it all, the sort of take-home part of this part of the story, is that regardless of what our temptation is, the worst of our temptations, or the hardest of trials, we know that Jesus, who is fully God, was created, excuse me, not created, what lived in the full image of human beings. Uh, he is just as much human as we are. Therefore, any need that we have, we can go to him and he can sympathize with our every weakness and need. So this is where I find Jesus, right here in Genesis chapter 1. He, like us, is in the image of God. So then let's look at another aspect of this passage, which is what I'm calling servant rule, where I see Jesus in Genesis chapter 1. There's so many uh, different directions we can take uh, sermon on Genesis 1 and 2, but let's start with a sense of awe and wonder at the mystery that is the world that we live in. Do you know how many different species, I don't mean different, you know, kinds or specific animals, but how many different species of plant and animal life there are in the world today? National Geographic estimates 8.7 million different species. And of those, they say, we've only identified so far about 1.2 million species, most of which are insects. Now, there's a comforting thought, right? So, uh, but think about 8.7 different, uh, 8.7 million different species of plants and animals on the earth. How many are on Mars or Venus? Zero that we know about. And so when people say like, yeah, we found evidence of life on Mars, 
okay, even if you ever find evidence of life on Mars, there might be some, you know, prehistoric kind of amoeba or whatever, but compare that to the earth. So God calls the worlds into being, and then he fills the earth with plants and animals, and we are, we all of us together are only one of those 8.7 million species. It is a world of wonder that God created for us, and how do we respond to that? Well, Genesis is going to tell us exactly how we respond to that, and one of the key ways, the first way that God says, I want you to respond to this world that I've created, is I want you to rule over it. I want you to have dominion over it. I want you to be in charge of it. So what exactly does it mean to be in charge of God's world, to rule over the world? We as human beings, because we are created in the image of God, have a unique privilege and responsibility in this world. And we cannot and must not, even though human beings often have, say, well, God just put all this out, out here because it's all about me. And it's about all about my What's the singular of species? Specie? It's all about, you know, who I am as a human being. We can't say that. Like, this is not here for us to, to use and abuse for our own greed and profit. We're not supposed to suck about uh, dominion, about supervision, about responsibility over the last few weeks, primarily by losing it. So one of the places I'm losing my sense of dominion is right here at church. Uh, so as I prepare for my retirement, I am giving up more and more of my responsibilities and my authority. Uh, that struck me when I was thinking, I did not choose this text to preach on. My colleague said, you're going to preach on Genesis 1 and 2 this week. I used to be in charge of all that. I'm not anymore. I don't go to staff meetings. Like, they tell me what I'm supposed to do, where I'm supposed to be. So it's all a part of a transition, giving the authority to others. So um, I also have been learning about dominion by losing it at home. Now, my wife has taken wonderful care of me, but as most of you know, I've been, uh, I had surgery about four weeks ago, and I've been in charge of a lot less. Now, I brought pictures from my surgery Because who wouldn't want to see pictures? Uh, there's Steve Siciliano. He texted me a few weeks ago when I sent him one of my pictures, and he says, I never thought when you became my pastor that we'd be sharing pictures of each other's intestines. But, you know, we've both been through a parallel. Well, I did not bring those pictures for the screen. I'm just saying, because I, I, I thought it makes some of you queasy. But I brought a couple of other pictures, including the one the day I won the fashion show, the first day after surgery. I thought you'd like to see this. So. I don't know why I even had the like thing I cover my eyes to sleep with, but uh, there you go. That's Pastor Bob one day after surgery. But it's not my favorite picture from that whole season. That a uh, couple days later, I got to go home. And the following Sunday, I sent a picture to my children and I put a caption on it. Um, I've been promoted to supervisor at home. So Linda's been taking great care of me. She's become the supervisor of my recovery, and she tells me, like, don't lift that, don't strain yourself, take a nap, uh, you know, so forth. So I've been learning about supervision by being supervised both at church and at home, and it's okay. But this chapter then tells us, well, what does it look like for us to take care of God's world? I've also been reading and listening to, depending on the situation, a book called The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs. Can we put that up there? 
this book was shared with me by Brian Ano. Brian is the chair of our board of property management. And Brian made a comment to me uh, a couple of weeks ago. Well, it must have been longer ago than that because it was before my surgery. Uh, we were looking at the Memorial Garden, which they're getting ready to expand out there. And they're, we're going to lose some trees. And uh, I said, Brian, you know, like people don't like to lose trees on the church property. And Brian said, listen, I'm a Republican tree hugger. Those words don't often go back to back like that, but Brian just wanted me to know, like people can trust me with the trees here. I love trees. I'm taking care of trees as much as possible, but as we expand this garden, we need to take care of it. And I promise you, we're gonna plant more trees and we're gonna take care of what we have out there. Well, Brian's the one who right before my surgery gave me a copy of this book, The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs. One of the things I love about this book is that the writer uh, is, uh, if I were guessing, I'd call him a Republican tree hugger, but basically he's, he's uh, an evangelical, if not, a, like he prefers the King James Version and the New King James Version of the Bible, and yet he loves the environment and he loves the world. And he says, I know that sometimes I sound like a, quote, tree-hugging, cosmic-worshipping, Gaia-promoting, big-government evolutionist, end quote, but he says, I'm not. Like, I love Jesus, but he says, I'm taking my direct command about how we treat the world from Genesis chapter 1. We have been given dominion and responsibility for the world as human beings, and he grieves the way that we human beings, particularly our food system, have treated the world and treated the food that we eat and buy and support in ways that really exploit the, the world that God has given to us instead of taking care of it. And I love that about him. First of all, I love the fact that he's coming from both sides of this. There are parts of this book that I don't like. I think he goes overboard. I think sometimes he uses scripture out of context, but Overall, he starts with the argument from right here in Genesis chapter 1. We are given the responsibility of stewarding God's earth. And just like my staff would never abuse me because I'm no longer in charge, that my wife's goal is really to take care of me while I'm recovering from surgery, uh, uh, God says, I'm giving you the responsibility of, as human beings of taking care of my world. So if you want one very practical application of the sermon today, think about the food that you eat and where it came from, and how those people who uh, sold it at some point in the chain treated pigs or chickens. Joel Salatin actually loves pigs and chickens. They're like pets, even though he's raising them on a farm. Uh, how is our food system being treated? How is your yard, your home, what you do, what you buy, how is it treating the care of God's creation over which he has given us great responsibility? So you say, well, I thought this sermon was about finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Where do you find Jesus in that? Here again, it's not difficult for me to make a direct Jesus connection. When you read the Gospels, do you remember how Jesus speaks about lilies and birds and farms and water? Like he uses these illustrations with tenderness and love and grace because he loves the world that God has created. And so in my office, I've got this uh, stained glass window of the parable of the sower. It's just one of the many places where Jesus says, these illustrations in nature reminding us of the goodness of this, and they point us to God. 
But the best way that I find Jesus in this part of our passage is really what Jesus taught us about servant leadership. So in all four Gospels, the night before Jesus died, the disciples who have been with Jesus for three years now maybe you're feeling a sense of, I don't know, power vacuum as Jesus tells them he's going to leave. And they squabble that night about who's going to be in charge when the kingdom comes. Remember, these are Jesus' disciples the night before he's going to model and show them what true leadership looks like by going all the way to the cross. And in that context, Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. You're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. So when I look for Jesus in Genesis, I see this servant leadership, this servant rule. We are in charge, but we are in charge of God's world so that we can take care of it and uh, be responsible in the way that we do. And then finally, uh, I want to point to the beginning of chapter 2, looking for Jesus in the creation story. Christians have uh, done more um, maybe debating about Sabbath than we have uh, looking at the, at the, the, the text and the context uh, sort of through a, 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 the eyes of humility. And I have to tell you, as I come to this passage and we learn again that God rested on the Sabbath day, that I have not modeled or taught the principle of Sabbath very well. Um, if you're looking for a model of a workaholic pastor, you've got that. But in terms of one who can let things go and take one day a week at least to just be with God and let all the responsibilities go, I'm not sure I've done that very well. But let's stop talking about my sins and let's get on to yours, okay? So I love what John Calvin says about the Sabbath, God did not command men simply to have a holiday every seventh day, as if he delighted in their indolence. Rather, being released from all other business, they are to more readily apply their minds to the creator of the world. So God creates this rhythm of time. We've already learned about the space that God created, meaning everything in the material world. Now he's also creating the rhythm of time to remind us that we are time-bound creatures and that at least some of our time must be devoted to releasing the other responsibilities and the busyness of life, as John Calvin says, just to be with God and to experience why he created us in order to have a relationship with him. The Sabbath principle is also taught to us by the writer of Hebrews who reminds us that Jesus himself is our rest and this is our motivation. Because we can rest in Jesus, then we make every effort to obey God's word. But Jesus himself teaches this in Matthew chapter 11, uh, verses 28 through 30, when Jesus, as he's, uh, the crowds are coming to him and he's so busy, he just reminds them, uh, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus wants to be your soul's recliner, your soul's sofa, your soul's serta. He wants to be the place where in the trials and troubles of this world, you find rest. And when we trust Jesus, we can rest. And when we rest, 
we can respond to Jesus in that moment. It's a joyful, grateful, hopeful obedience and relationship. Every moment of rest of body and soul points to Jesus. And once again, we find Jesus here in the Old Testament. So you've come to church today looking for Jesus, and maybe we found Jesus in uh, somewhere that you did not expect to find Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament. You're going to experience that over and over again in the next uh, few months, all the way up through Christmas, as we look in the pages of the Old Testament to where we can find Jesus. But let me give you one more beautiful reminder about looking for Jesus. He's not hiding from you. It's not like he's trying to be obscure. Looking for Jesus kind of reminds me of playing hide-and-seek with my two-year-old granddaughter, and you're deliberately putting yourself in a place where a two-year-old can find you. And when she goes and hides from you, it's kind of obvious where she is, right? So two-year-olds don't necessarily grasp this idea, but hide-and-seek with a two-year-old is, I want to be found by you. And this is the beauty also of... uh, what we find in the Gospels, that this God, this Jesus whom we're looking for, is always looking for us, always pursuing us, always wanting us, wanting to relate to us. St. Augustine memorably wrote, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Blaise Pascal furthered the idea, our lives are an abyss that can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, which is to say, only by God himself. And that's why ultimately this looking for Jesus in the Old Testament offers hints and previews and unfulfilled longings that only come into focus at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's so appropriate today that we gather around the table of the Lord because as we're looking for Jesus, God has, through Jesus, made the ultimate commitment to become one of us and to show us the extent to which he will go to come looking for us. Human beings, all of them, are created in his image, and God wants all of them. He wants you. You are infinitely valuable to him, and he wants your response of your heart to claim what Jesus has done for you and to live in relationship with God through what Jesus has provided on the cross. Would you pray with me, please? God, it never gets old to me to tell the story. It never gets old to me to remember the cross. It never gets old to me to recall the lengths to which you went to claim me. And God, thank you for reminders of things we already knew and things we had forgotten, things we have deliberately overlooked. May we be stewards of what you have given to us in our world, and may we be those who find in the image of God our sense of worth and value, and may we be those who find our rest in the God who showed what it means to rest and provided it for us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.